Hey up friends, it's Mark, you're listening to episode 86 of the Looking Sideways Action Sports podcast. So many pods, so little time, eh, as a friend of mine said to me the other day. I've actually had a surprising number of complaints from people that I'm releasing all this free content too quickly, which is a new one, I must say, because when I had a bit of time off, I got complaints from people that I'd slowed down too much, which just goes to show there's literally nothing that people on the internet won't complain about. Anyway, episode 86. Meant a lot to me this one on a couple of levels. I've got Jamie Brissick back on the show for this episode. Now, long-term listeners to the show will recall that Jamie, a surfer, writer and documentary maker, was one of my first guests back in the day and the first person I broke my no Skype rule for. Now, I do actually have a no Skype rule, which I do break every now and again, basically because recording podcasts over Skype, especially if you can't be asked sending the other person a decent mic, is the most half our shit ever. But in Jamie's case, I made an exception and I did send him a mic. And uh, this episode was a favourite from the early years of the show. And after that, we stayed in touch, corresponding every now and again, basically uh, developing a bit of a burgeoning online friendship. So when I knew I'd be passing through Malibu, of course, I made plans to catch up with Jamie in person and share that long-awaited beer. And then the Malibu fire happened and Jamie, who'd been living in Malibu, lost everything that he owned and the life that he'd put back together following a previous catastrophe disappeared once more. Now, this was an experience he quickly explored in a beautiful article published in The New Yorker soon after the fire. And it also meant that when we did meet, there was really only going to be one topic of conversation. So it was that about halfway through the trip, we met up and we actually recorded this episode at the site of his former home about five months after the fire. Now, at this point, Malibu, which had been completely ravaged by the experience, particularly Point Dune, which is where Jamie had been living, was undergoing a bit of a beautiful rebirth. A lot of the debris had been cleared and the landscape had been beautifully reinvigorated by the cleansing of the fire and an unusually wet winter. So the result was a beautiful and moving conversation recorded in probably the most picturesque spot I've ever recorded one of these episodes in. And we explored some of the biggest themes of all during this chat because let's face it, disaster, catastrophe, grief, they're the concealed details of life. Nobody ever talks about them, but they're hidden in plain sight in the hope that we never have to experience them. The truth, of course, is that we'll all be tested by such experiences at some point in our lives. And until we are, a couple of questions loom. How will we cope? How are we going to square these experiences and move forward? And these are questions that Jamie's had to face twice now in the last decade. The most impressive thing about Jamie is that, like all true artists, he's used these unimaginable losses as fuel for his work channeling both an inspirational equanimity and unfathomable levels of level-headed self-knowledge into a series of articles exploring the aftermath of the fire and what it's meant to his life that rank among his finest work, if you ask me. I was a huge admirer of Jamie before we met in person and now having seen the first hand the losses he's experienced and the grace and searching good humour with which he's handling them, my admiration for one of surfing's most original artists has only increased, really. So here it is, my conversation with Jamie Brissick after the fire. Enjoy. Jamie, how you doing? I'm doing well, Matt. Yeah, really nice to finally meet you. Yeah, likewise. It's been um, a few years of correspondence, we were saying. Yes. And uh, so we're in Malibu at your your old place, basically, which was 
burnt down in the Woolsey fire. So tell me, yeah, tell me a bit about what we can see because it's an absolutely incredible view. Yeah, you know, well, the house itself had a great view and the house was wonderful and I'd lived there for a little over a year and um, and the fire came very, very quickly um, and and then the place was gone. I mean, it was just, it happened so quick. Um, did, you have, did you have much, so did they give you much notice? Because you knew, obviously, the fire had been going for days. Well, I got a, I, there was a, there was a mandatory evacuation text message that was somehow sent out to everyone who lived in Malibu that morning. Right. I don't know how that worked te- technologically, but everyone got it. Right. And, um, and I sort of took my time evacuating, watched the fire a little bit, actually took photographs I mean, I was mesmerized by it. And so many people I spoke to said the same thing. It was this weird, like, being transfixed by the, the odd beauty of it all. Yeah. Um, and I was, I was, it sort of lulled me into this place where I forgot to, like, put all my stuff in my car when I finally evacuated. And I guess, you know, it was, it was maybe my own um, ignorance, but I just did not think that the fire was going to jump PCH and get to Point Doom where I live. Is that the normal, because fires are, a comment is that the normal kind of c- containment point if you like they v- never they never come over the highway very much so you know so much of malibu and then southern malibu getting into santa monica is there's the santa monica mountain so it's essentially yeah. like where the water meets the the, the 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 land there's a very short space before it just jets up into the santa monica mountains yeah and we've i mean i've you know i've lived here on and off throughout my entire life and Fires are just something you live with, but they don't. They typically don't get across PCH. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So it's it's sort of we live with the reality of them, and I should have been more on top of it. That's for sure. But um, I just didn't think it was going to happen. Yeah. So how could you have been more on top of it? As in, like you could have evacuated earlier or got more possessions. It or? would have been more possessions. I mean, I'm. I sort of lost everything I had. I happened to have like a couple of surfboards in my car and a wetsuit, and I did have my you know writing gear for the day which is pretty much everything i need i'm i'm fortunate in that i travel light that way yeah um but no i mean i had a lot of sentimentals and um and i had things that i'd been carrying around with me for 40 years that yeah, were sure. irreplaceable that the, i lost the possessions that you accrue right? yeah yeah you seem to be incredibly um sanguine about the whole thing you know you, you seem to be i've been a mate because i've you know you've written about it really clear clear-headedly you've and even today just talking about it you know we're, we're on the site of where it's happened you definitely seem to to have coped with it emotionally incredibly well like is that is that is that something that's taken you by surprise that's kind of you to say i you know here's the thing i've had i've i've had the rug pulled out from under me more than once in this life and and i've i'm now actually self-aware i can observe myself enough to know my pattern and i think I was actually talking to someone about this with regards to trauma. I think sometimes in, it's some sort of in, in, inner coping device, and I'm sure everyone's different, but I learned from myself, it's sort of, it's almost like we're going to give you like a slow drip of this stuff, but we're not going to just dump it all on top of you. So what happened with me was, I think I did a fine job of, of deceiving myself that it was all okay, and uh, you know, it's only possessions, and my, my joke with friends were like, I've become a Buddhist by default, and I've, I was never materialistic to begin with. And the fire was on November 9th. And so, and my immediate response was, I just need to work. I need to write. I need to write about this. Um, and I need to earn some money. So it was sort of like I had this, um, 
I had a wonderful kind of way of evading the the truth of the whole thing, which was just writing about it. And then it also was, you know, Thanksgiving here in the U.S., and then we had Christmas right after. And so, again, like all the people I know in this area that had gone through this, they said the same thing. It kind of provided this distraction. So it was sort of like, oh, you know, the holiday parties and, you know, family gatherings and all these things that sort of, and just being so close to the end of the year that it was like, okay, I'll deal with this in 2019. Right. So I definitely had this thing where I thought I was fine. I was kind of very social after and, and I, I almost like kept reiterating. It was almost like I was trying to fool myself that all was okay. But, and then, and then as a few days before new year's, I was like, you know what? The, the reality of this is going to actually hit as soon as we turn the year and everyone goes back to work. I mean, it happens when you've not lost all your possessions in January. So yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it's coming. Yeah. So I, you know, I mean, I've gone through it and it has, it's, it's sort of, um, it, it's all, it's weird how like it brings up much more than just the loss. And I can, I can, I've, tr- I've done this and I almost push it away, but I can do like an itemized list. I start to go, oh, that beautiful camera I had that I like so much. And those, the body of work that I shot many years ago that was not backed up on a hard drive. And I lost all my hard drives. So it's sort of these things that are like so deeply a part of me, work that I've done, basically yeah. photography work. Um, and so there's that side of it. But then there's this other weird side of, um, of sort of, starting anew and and going and looking for a place to live and all this stuff that is almost like it almost like stabs at the at the like midlife crisis waiting to happen in me you know it's like this thing of like makes it forces these like greater existential questions that that are in the race of the day you don't normally don't have to think of yeah but when all your shit burns down and then suddenly it's like i got to find a new place to live and i've got to replace this and then now i don't even have like a proper jacket and i don't have a decent pair of shoes and you know, I've just had those moments where it's like, oh, I'm a 52-year-old man, you know, sitting in a restaurant alone, and I'm like, I, I'm I, uh, in this meta way, I'm like, I, I'm kind of tragic right now, you know? I mean, I try not to dwell there, but the, I've definitely, those moments have happened, and they didn't happen when I had a beautiful home with an ocean view that I could, you know, come home to. Yeah. Is that, has that been a common reaction? Because one of the things that, that comes across in the things you've written about this is, you've talked to a lot of people a lot of neighbors a lot of friends from the area who've been through the similar experience and the different ways of processing it and the different ways that people are accepting it is, is what you're talking about something that you've found in other people that have been through the same experience to some degree but you know the thing is i've i've been sort of the anomaly of, of my point doom malibu neighborhood i mean this is this incredibly exclusive upscale neighborhood yeah and I mean, and i can tell that yeah and so so I've rented I've rented a, a small guest house with a roommate. So and and I'm unmarried and I have no children and my uh if you were to look at my tax returns you would find that I'm not I'm I'm falling way below most of the, my neighbors. Yeah, you probably shouldn't have been it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so I think here's the thing. I think that um for whatever reason I, the, the the material things have never been I mean maybe this is because I've been a surfer and I've traveled around as a surfer and I've moved around a lot in my life so it's never been about sort of collecting stuff and it's never been about you know trophies literally and figuratively in in some place where like I can invite people over and they can look at this stuff that I've accrued in my life yeah never been that way I I would suspect many of the people surrounding me or that did surround me when I lived here were much more of that sort because there were like big shiny Range Rovers in the driveway yeah. and you know clearly Those status like, things yeah exactly and I guess like in some weird way um, something like this happens and I and again and I mean, it messes with me but 
it, it it's messed with my head on many levels, but but that's not been one of them. It's not so I haven't. There might be like some some great kind of um, realization that that some of my neighbors might have faced, which is like you you know they you can't take it with you kind of thing. Yeah. Like these that the, it's only things. Yeah. And I sort of I think I've already been that. I've already, I just naturally fell into that. And I think that that's it's something that almost comes with surfing. It's like yeah. in the ocean, you're like looking at something so much larger than you and, and so utterly beautiful. And therefore like whatever art pieces you might have on your wall, while they, there might have some story, they may mean a lot to you. It's like, you're kind of, I don't know. I think surfing sort of teaches you to shed things. Yeah. How, how's it affected your relationship with Malibu? Cause one of the words you use in the New Yorker piece is conflicted with your relationship with with Malibu and because obviously you were brought up in LA right and you uh, and you yeah. know this this part of this part of the world clearly has many associations for you and you grew up surfing here and I kind of got the impression that when you moved back here when you say it was just over a year ago uh-huh. it marked a bit of a new phase in your relationship with Malibu yeah I mean I in, look in to some in some ways I I wonder sometimes if I'm almost like hanging on to this like kind of punk rock attitude that I had when I was younger, which is just sort of resist the establishment or resist the idea of wealth. It was like, you know, when I was a teenager, it was the idea of, um, of being, of, of having status symbols of the very notion of status being something that's sort of like disgusting and like you're thumbing your nose at it. And then maybe I hang on to that a little bit because as I say, I'm 52 years old now. So I'm like, and I've lived an incredibly good life. I mean, for me to say one bad thing about the lifestyle that I had in Malibu is probably like not unfair because it's been great to me. But I, but it, but it is this thing of um, I don't know. I've just always I've always valued and, and it's come from traveling um, the idea of being able to sort of blend with all strata of life or, or to the best of our you know the best we can obviously yeah. but not getting not living a sort of ivory tower existence where you're you're only hanging out with a sort of homogenized set of people who are in the same income bracket of you same color as you same values praying to the same god so to speak right yeah and i guess like to some degree and it's and it's not, i don't mean this like personally against the people that i lived that were my neighbors here in Malibu because i like so many of them but just by virtue of the sort of price tag to get in here, yeah. it kind of like strips it down to this like 1% or 3% or whatever. Yeah. So so that was my conflicted thing was in many ways it was sort of like I'm going surfing every day. There's this beautiful resource that is the ocean and the fun waves around here. And all my life that has kind of fortified me. And um, But then there are people around me who really maybe don't even notice how beautiful that is, nor, yeah. do, nor do they engage and partake in, in it. And their thing is 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 much more like an LA status thing. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you talk about a lot in the that comes across is like the incongruity of, of living here. Like, there's a couple of images that you use, like you know, you talk about going down the beach. There's like people with llamas on the beach, and there's people like in the face of the fire driving Porsches and like screaming into mobile phones. And you know, I think there's another phrase you use like the tenor of self satisfaction. Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost mm-hmm. like there was that the fire brought that out a little bit that, that you seem to have a bit of a struggle with yeah well you know uh, i'll tell you what was really interesting is it, there's there's it it's more nuanced than this but the extremes of malibu is there are people who have you know five million dollar and above homes and then there are then there are like folks driving around in like dusty trucks and yeah. surfers and they live in apartments or guest houses and and they're really here because they love the waves and they love they're kind of like attuned to more the nature versus like the the big house and the trophyish side of it all. Yeah. And um, 
what was really interesting, the, what, what came of the fire is like so many of the folks who have the most expensive real estate in Malibu, they were the first to exit. And, and the folks who are much more like the, the grassroots of the, of the community or the salt of the earth, if you will, um, the surfers. Yeah. They were the ones that were like, this is my place and I love it. And, and interestingly, like there was almost this strange like flopping of the status of Malibu or, or like what is valued in Malibu. Yeah, like a bit of a subversion of the normal order. Totally. Yeah. Like, because on a good day, it's sort of like, oh, there's that famous person or there's yeah. that billionaire. It or, has that kind of, yeah. Y- yeah. And you see that and you see that in the parking lot of the supermarket with the cars there and all that kind of stuff. Like the guy with the dusty van who like, you know, is sort of like a hippie surfer guy or whatever is like that's almost not that they're it's frowned upon i mean i think but but it's sort of like that they're not like part of the mal the, the valued community yeah and when the when this thing happened it was those you know i'm generalizing of course but like so many of those folks were the ones that were like i'll defend this community and i love this place and some of them were you know and these were many of my friends folks that i surfed with and they were third generation malibu folks who you know whatever they're they're like the thing has never been about like get a bunch of money and get a big house. Yeah. I mean, almost in the, the things, the things that made them so like part of the fabric of Malibu is that they surf a lot or they, you know, whatever they're like social in this environment and there, and there's something pure and, and they did that. They've been doing that for a long time versus going after that. They were less ambitious, let's say. Yeah. Cause there was groups that were like bringing in supplies from, the, the sea wasn't there like local surfers and yeah um it sounds like there was, it, it engendered a kind of quite rare spirit in a way like the fire you know there was out of adversity a bit more of a, a community that perhaps maybe you don't normally see definitely you know it, it was it, there was just a lot of um it was almost like this this strange moment where how do we describe just these my experience with it was you're just sort of flayed open you're, you there's this sort of sense of like raw emotion that everyone's carrying and there were there were there were so many people that just rallied it was like um you ever seen the movie force majeure about the it's the avalanche yeah 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 and, and it's sort of like what happens in that emergency moment you see people's true colors yeah the reaction yeah, yeah. there was like a force majeure moment with all this where it was like you know some people fled some people stayed some people like rallied and became like the the, the you know very quickly learned how to be sort of um what what firefighters might do in terms of like putting out spot fires and they just like they just rose to this challenge and one day i came up here um i'd evacuated and i totally regretted that actually yeah well that's another thing that really comes across because i think there's a line where you say because you couldn't get back in right and you could see all this unfolding yeah and it sounds like you're really regretful not to be part of it yeah i mean i it was some it was sort of in some weird way like i um it would have been it would have been an experience that, and I know because I've spoken to many of the, the folks who were a part of it, and their thing was like, it was it was so surreal, but it was something I'll never ever forget, and I learned so much. It was kind of like this heightened moment in life, you know, even though it was essentially built on what you might call, and I guess it is a tragedy. I mean, if you lose a lot of stuff, it is technically a tragedy. Yeah. If you look at it in a, in a in, you know, thousands, over the course of thousands of years, it's just like the cycles of nature and it's just doing what it does. But after the fire burned, I was talking to a dear friend who I've known forever and, and he, I think he'd heard that I'd lost my place or whatever. And, and then he, he was like, you know, you're, you're a writer, you're an artist. Like these, are the, these are the things that are like, 
it may not seem like it now, but this is actually, you want real stuff to come to you in life. You don't want to have some like mundane life where nothing happens because you don't really learn that much. So I guess missing out on all the stuff that happened here was that. But I did get back up about four days after, four or five days after the fire. Um, and I hung out in the at the Point Doom Elementary School, which is where the Point Doom Bomberos, who are all the sort of yeah. vigilante firefighters, everyone was there. And it was there was this energy. There was this incredible bonding kind of energy and everyone working together. And it was just like, it was just watching, it was almost like probably watching a paramedic or, or a real firefighter where it's sort of like the call to action is there and you just don't hesitate for a second. Yeah. In the UK, it's called the Blitz Spirit, basically. Like, because in the, in the war, the Blitz, you know, is this mythical um, sense of community, mm-hmm. supposedly. Mm-hmm. So whenever whenever there's a there's some kind of you know tra- traumatic event on a community level that's what's always invoked you know mm-hmm. this is what really remind this when i was reading your story and you were talking about this, it kind of that's what it'd be called in the uk basically you right. know in yeah right now in with brexit there's this whole thing about like well it'll be fine you know we'll invoke the blitz spirit and you know we'll we'll crack mm-hmm. on but it is sounds like really interesting the way that like we say it kind of did subvert the way that the natural order of how things tend to be here socially which, yeah um, sure. and and the other interesting point is like what happens next really because as as we were talking about before it's it's a really natural part of the of the natural order here isn't it you know mm-hmm, th- mm-hmm. Th- these fires um and as you as we can see there's a lot of rebuilding going on yeah and people are rushing back um has there been any change in approach to how people feel about living here in the in the light of this because obviously it's the worst thing that's happened in recent years but it's pretty common right yeah i think so you know it's interesting i mean there was there have been many fires and a lot of expensive real estate has burned and people you know recover from it i mean this one was bigger than any in my lifetime um and when i first you know my response after was to move straight back up here and i came up and i was looking at some places that you know were possible spots to move into and uh and every time I'd come up, I'd be driving out, and there'd be all the removal trucks, and it was almost like this giant construction site. It had this, it, it had the vibe of a construction site, and also of a kind of cemetery, because it was sort of like my beloved community. It's all burned to the ground. It's all you'd see these concrete foundations, but there was nothing around it where there used to be homes, and uh, and so it occurred to me. I had this thought of not only did I lose my place in my possessions, but I lost my life, basically, my community, my. Um, you know, just like my daily habits. Like I found such a nice groove um, and Malibu works so well because I do love to surf and I do, it's sort of, you know, I'm surrounded, it's, there are plenty of interesting people around yet it's, you're also surrounded in nature. So it was kind of like you get the best of both worlds. Um, and it occurred to me that, okay, the whole community is kind of broken. Um, but, you know, we're sitting here on a beautiful spring day and I think as the summer comes in and well, the water's going to warm up and people in LA come out to the beach and then the businesses will start booming again. And I think, I don't know, I think it'll recover pretty quickly. Have you found, cause you mentioned earlier that the re, you know, it's really green right now, isn't it? It's, it's really, you know, the, the, the natural regeneration is really striking. Have you found anything that you can take from that? There's this thing that happens here in LA and it's, and, and I've, I've observed this and probably anyone paying closer attention than me would have say, that's so obvious but you know we get these really dry summers we don't get rain and everything gets more and more flammable and as you drive through the canyon roads though there are signs that say you know be very very careful high alert for, for forest fires don't throw you know don't any kind of cigarettes like don't 
And it starts in these mountains behind us. And it starts in these mountains behind us. Yeah. Yes, the Santa Monica Mountains, yeah. exactly. Which which Santa Monica is further south from where we are here sure. in Point Doom, but Santa Monica Mountains actually stretch way north. And they're, yeah. they're really big, and they sort of extend into the Hollywood uh, Hills. Yes, yeah, so it's like your natural boundary, basically. Yes, yeah. yeah. And so, so what happens is dry, dry summers, and then you get into the fall, which is the time when you're going to maybe start to get a little bit of rain and or get the Santa Ana winds. And effectively, it's a, a race between the Santa Ana winds and the rain. If the rain comes first, it sort of wets everything and it's way less flammable. And so when the Santa Ana's come, it's less likely to ignite at all. Um, but if you get the Santa Ana's first and you get the big fires like we had, um, and then after that you get the rain, you get mudslides. So sometimes it's like a double hit, like stuff yeah. burns and then you have like, you know, the roads are like... The, the mountains are spilling into the roads, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we had that horribly in Montecito last year. Right. But what, what was interesting is so so we had the fire and then and then we had a very wet winter. Like the rain just poured. It was it was uh, there was a lot of it. Thankfully, the the uh, mudslides were not nearly what we expected. It was way kinder than we thought. But what was amazing is all these charred mountains quickly turned green. And yeah. it was just this. It was yeah. It was gorgeous. It was like oh okay. It all just comes back yeah and in, in some weird way it was almost like i don't know i just on uh, uh, some way it was like oh i have to be reminded it was a reminder to sort of not get stuck in whatever kind of narrative i'm telling myself or whatever you know i mean i've definitely i I'll, i will admit like after this thing happened there'd be moments i wasn't even aware of but it was almost like a self-pitying feeling you know just like god this thing sucks and i'm <laughs> trying to like i'm trying to move ahead with my life i'm trying to move my life forward and then this thing's like throwing me way backwards but seeing everything turn green, um, it was just like nature, you know, go, nature as metaphor kind of like slapping you in the face going, look, you, everything regenerates in whatever form it does. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible equanimity in that to to to, to look at it in that way. Because as you alluded to earlier, you've, you've had a couple of very major life events in the last decade that have effectively changed your life overnight. I mean, is that is that something that... That's, did, that, did the first experience help understand this in any way? Yeah, I mean, so what you're referring to is uh, six years ago, my wife passed away suddenly. And that was, um, I mean, I've had other stuff happen in my life, but no, nothing hit me as hard as that. And um, and there really was, I, you know, I we were in New York at that time. I, I moved to California to kind of start anew. And it was this thing of, I've got a backpack over my shoulder and I'm dragging my, my uh, duffel bag. And this is like, I'm starting anew. It's like, you know, back then it was almost like a metaphorical, like, um, you know, stepping out of the, the, the burned house and starting something new. And this time, so, so then anyway, so this happens and it's sort of like in the last five and a half years, I've been like getting my life back together and feel, felt better and, and felt so good. And then suddenly the fire comes and just takes it all. And so, so when I talk about my own like self-pitying stuff, it's sort of like, shit, the stuff's coming down on me. Yeah. But you know, but I, that said, I don't, spend too much time there and and i guess weirdly when this fire happened i had this thing of like i've been here before i've be, i've been here where it's sort of like i've got a backpack over my shoulder and i'm just got to start anew yeah and you mentioned that and that's why i asked the question really because there's a really striking line in your new yorker piece where you you kind of say like you, you recognize the feeling yeah and i you know honestly i don't think it's a terrible f- feeling and as my my friend reminded me it's like 
well, you're 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 a writer. You're an artist. Like these, this is these are the this is exactly this is a storied life versus a bland life, and this is like the stuff of story, and this is the stuff to write. And I mean, God, what I mean, I was, that is that you know you can tell yourself that though, and and you you can, yeah. I mean, obviously you want that, but even so, I mean, that's it's a pretty punchy thing to say. No, it is. And my <laughs> friends, this friend in particular, that's, is very that's tough love, right there, isn't it? No, it's true, but it is true, and and it, it is. It's sort of like. Um, Oh, he's a real friend that can say that to you. Yeah, well, it also comes back to that sort of thing about, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger Yeah, it's that, like Nietzsche sort of stuff, isn't it, you yeah. know? Yeah, But But no, but I guess um, there was, with Fire, there was the sense of, oh, I've been here before and I know exactly what I need to do. And it's sort of all these, like... Uh, all these things come up in my head of like, okay, make sure this, it's almost like, it's almost this, this meta experience or kind of the self-awareness of now's the time when you could easily veer into bad stuff. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. I remember years ago reading a, a book by the writer Paul Oster and it was a memoir and he was, and he said, he's, he, he, he describes like walking down the street in New York and he sees a guy kind of living in a cardboard box, clearly homeless. And, and he sort of, meditates on him for a moment and then he says something like you know we're we're all no matter where we are in our lives we're all just a couple of bad moves away from being in that place ourselves yeah and 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 i think i was younger when i read that and it was like oh that's a striking line and now i i completely relate so i guess like (laughs) being a widower having my home burned down there's this sort of like moment of like god I, i could you know i could be and i did sleep in my car you know more than once um so there was this sense of wow, this is like, this is not how I'd planned it when I was looking at my golden future at age 23 or whatever. And, you know, like it's harder, it's way harder than I thought. But again, it's sort of not, you don't want to, you don't want to spend too much time thinking about that. And it is, it does come down to these like cliched things that I naturally resist my like young punk rocker self resist. But the idea of like a gratitude list, I actually totally understand a gratitude list is a valuable thing. Yeah. When you're, when you're in a place where life's being tough to you to sort of start your morning with, I'm grateful for these things. You know, I mean, again, I'm like hitting cliches here, but like a, every day above ground is a good day sort of thing. Yeah, well, they do value those things. I mean, you, you know, they, they can be glib and they can be cliched, like you say, but they do serve a grounding purpose in some way, don't they? Especially yeah. when you're faced with these situations. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So what's next? You're uh, you're moving to Topanga, right? Is I'm that... moving to Topanga Canyon, yeah. um, which is close by. And, uh, and then I have a lot of writing I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so you obviously listeners that checked out the first episode the the conversation about a couple of years ago will be aware of uh the westerly project that you've been working on for a couple of years yes so um how's that looking it's really good we're we're, we're at the very end and um it's been a long project and been a fantastic subject and uh excited to get the film out there yeah because last time we spoke it was just after westerly had become Peter again yes is that still the scenario that's still the scenario so was that I guess that was you know as a documentary maker and and a a writer almost like the perfect appendix to the whole thing really I know it was so unexpected and it was interesting because we'd been working on the film already for a long time and we sort of when we started um, we knew it was going to be a long ride and uh, you know Peter former surf star of the 60s and 70s in midlife begins to live as a woman and decides I want to have my surgery and we sort of went oh this is fascinating and I had written about her and 
we'd struck up a relationship and so it became okay well you know follow me around with a camera for a while so we were doing all that and then she'd had her surgery in Bangkok which we documented and then went back to Australia and was living in Australia and we thought okay so the story's over and we sort of you know there was an event about there was an event several months after she'd had the surgery that sort of tied everything up and it felt like an end um, and so we were editing and working on that and we, we just couldn't get the ending to work it was it always felt sort of pat or heavy-handed or kind of something and and then um, and then I'd learned that she'd gone back to being he so we basically went back to australia filmed all that stuff and then we've edited that so that's that's where we're at yeah and how how it's a, how is peter at the minute is he still um collaborating with you on the project no we've been in touch less i think he's anxious to have the film out in the world um but i think he's okay yeah i mean it's because we talked about this in the first conversation you know about the moral sort of layers to this really um because it, among the australian sort of surf fraternity there, there's always seems to have been this feeling that essentially it's like a performance art piece really or like yeah. this this attention seeking um play you know yeah. from a from an action sport it's something we talked about earlier actually before we started recording you know like this idea that people have attained huge success in these worlds yeah um how you basically cope when the when the, the spotlight fades yeah and, you know and this this is something that we were saying that like people handle like really differently and, and that argument is basically that isn't it it's like well this is his kind of last throw of the dice to sort of get the attention because he's always like this archetypal sort of puckish prankster guy wasn't he you know for sure um but that's obviously like really morally um questionable you might say to be playing with this yeah i know with this gender conversation in this way for sure i mean there was a period where in many ways and it's interesting how fast the world has changed because we started even when we started talking two years ago that that debate is completely different already isn't it completely different and we started the project i think in 2011 um i first wrote about westerly in 2009 and and her the big thing her 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 sort of big dream in her life was to have gender reassignment surgery and then 2011 we started working on the project and I think it was 2012 was it yeah 2012 that she had the surgery um and for a while there was and then and then sort of people you know transgender awareness grew right and and I guess compassion for transgender folks grew tremendously right because they were so sort of marginalized before um and and then in some way and not you know thankfully we never really thought this way and and i don't i don't mean that in a patting ourselves and when i say we i'm talking about alan white and i are directing this together and the production team um and we've all had a lot of meetings about this we were never it was never about oh we got to get the film out there because right now transgender's hot like we no, never ever wanted that it was no. sort of this story is much bigger than all of that um but there was a moment where it's where it became where it was sort of oh, you know, this might fit neatly into this world right now where people are really curious about transgender stories. Um, but what's happened is, in, to some degree, West Westerly became Peter, and Peter, to some degree, is the sort of transgender cautionary tale or the anti-transgender story. Um, so it became something entirely different than we thought. And was that difficult to... 
I mean, that must have been challenging editorially. Let's put it that way. It was, but I mean, you know, again, I think my original fascination with Peter Druin was this surfer that brought this sort of theatrical element. It was almost like a performance artist in the surf world. Yeah. And surfing, when I was a young kid, when I came to surfing, I mean, surfing was almost performance art. The characters were so great. And I was kind of, Mickey Dora was long gone from Malibu at that time, but his influence was still there. He was still in magazines, watching surf films. Everyone, Everything was sort of larger than life in the way that it is when you're 11 or 12 years yeah, old. Yeah, and those, and those figures like, were genuinely counterculture figures. And that was the appeal yes it's obviously become much more homogenized now really yeah. in, yes. in, in our world as it's become much more mainstream and i think that's necessarily happened you know obviously these characters are around but i can see why you were drawn to this because it's it's in that line isn't it you know of, definitely of, of like, like those stories in, in the culture basically yeah i mean i'd been i started writing about surfing and was an editor of various surf magazines from from about 92 to the early aughts and this kind of like at the end of your competitive career right yeah i started yeah. i stopped competing around 19 i was a pro surfer for five years stopped around 91 92 and then i went straight into working i kind of backdoored my way in how was that transition for you then speaking of this um it, you know how you cope with the well it was so interesting because it was a combination of being crushing and then totally illuminating and what i mean is i went from like being you know i was a middling pro surfer i was never super top but i had some nice moments in my career and yep. i was on tour and i'd you know go around the world and i'd exit heats and there'd be kids reaching out with a picture of me in the magazine i'd sign it so there was whatever whatever version of it's being heady, a surf star heady stuff yeah it was exciting yeah um and so I went from that to when I when it ended abruptly, I started working for magazines, and and then I was exactly the opposite. I was like a guy waiting on the beach to like get an interview with Shane Dorian or yeah. Kelly Slater or whoever. And to some degree, that was ego crushing. But honestly, like very quickly, I sort of realized that. I mean, as a pro athlete or a pro surfer, it was as if I had these blinders on and all I had to focus on was how well I'm doing and trying to win contests. And it was this very myopic, narrow thing to, to pay attention to. Yeah. And the moment I kind of jumped into the journalism seat and I realized, oh, like writing is this way to kind of actually get to explore things that I'm interested in, it almost it just quickly snowballed. So as soon as the, like there was the this this sort of like oh my life's gone backwards i used to be the star now i'm the guy trying to chase around the star yeah that thought didn't last very long in my head because it was actually no this is super interesting and i'm fascinated by the psychology and i have inroads into this culture and world that um you know firsthand experience that i can sort of bring to this yeah um and on some totally vain way there was my byline in the magazine so i was like getting stuff in print which was yeah. great so it, there was a sense of momentum it wasn't like i'm trying to break into this thing i kind of backdoored in and i was already there so did you use this interest that we're talking about in in the context of peter back then did you use that platform as a way of advancing these stories and this, this well, kind of this is the thing so the but the here's the here's the thing my fascination and love of surfing came when when there were these all all these outlandish sort of you know rebellious characters yeah. they were they were like very much the counterculture and that was what drew me to surfing and and by the time i started documenting it it was sort of homogenized it was sort of way less radical and and the magazines that i was writing for i mean the characters that i thought were interesting they didn't often fit and the publishers were not interested because that person wasn't sponsored or whatever like the the really the kind of outlier characters yeah. didn't fit the model of of the whole um advertisers dictating editorial content the whole kind of politics of the industry which was so disillusioning for me um and you know you know for whatever reason i could say grow, i was going to say growing up in la but just for whatever reason my upbringing was 
diverse. I was around a lot of a lot of interesting characters, and I th- I I think I was very open minded, and so much of the surf industry was more narrow minded, and it was homophobic, and it was sort of afraid of kind of strange characters. It's extremely conservative. Totally it never, conservative. Never fails. You know, never ceases to amaze me. Yes. You know, like it is. I was talking about this with a friend of mine who's an Australian surf journalist, who was writing a piece about the olympics you know it's obviously one of the big topics and we were saying the same thing it's it's just so inherently conservative surfing well they they all are to a degree you know for 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 cultures that are supposed to promote this idea of individuality and it's amazing how quickly they they solidify into these you know tribal lines that are very difficult to break really i i so agree and i i thought about this so much and i i wonder why and it's and it's interesting because the literal act of surfing the very fluidity the idea of like no way no two waves are the same you're in the ocean you got to bend your knees you got to be fluid you got to flow like all everything about that if you were if if you were to sort of think about what it stands for it should stand for the opposite yeah exactly and that there are these rigid minds but it's also the other side and i realize this you know Having traveled the world for five years as a pro surfer, and and at that time being in my late teens, early twenties, my friends were like, "Oh, you're the world traveler. You're the world traveler." Well, as soon as I sort of got out of the little bubble of surfing, I realized, "Yes, I'm the world traveler, but not really, because all I've really done is hug the coastline and hung out with the same and the surf. Quite honestly, like the surfers in the southwest of France, the surfers in Durban, South Africa, the surfers in yeah, Southern California, the little village that moves around. Exactly. I mean, snowboarding is worse. I mean, you know, you end up phrase always uses like islands for rich people you know culturally again it's just super homogenized yeah and you're not exactly seeing you know the culture let's put it that way yeah for sure so when i so when i sort of encounter when i'd first written this profile of of peter drew who is now living as westerly wendina there was a little bit of like i had an axe to grind it was sort of like i'm happy to get behind this person and champion them because it's going, uh, this person comes from a world where everyone's sort of naysayers or everyone's sort of um, close-minded towards this theatrical, really fresh, interesting mind. And and so, I don't know, it was almost, I mean, Westerly was almost like, if I were writing fiction, it might have been a character I'd, I'd invent to go like this. This person has stands for a lot of things that the, a lot of ideas I want to get across. Yeah, I mean it's so so layered, especially yeah. in that surf culture as well, which is per- perhaps the most conservative surf culture in the world in a lot of ways. You know, yeah. to, to 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 do to to come up with that, whether it is a performance art piece or whatever, to come up with that and to 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 do that for so long and. Yeah, I mean, I can see why that story completely resonated with you. Well, you've spent yeah. a decade on it, haven't you? Yeah, basically. Yeah, for sure. No, because because I mean, Matt, we share this, and it's sort of this this. Uh, I was going to say action sports. I'm not even sure what to call it. Board riding, yeah. whatever you want to call you it. You know, I side, always end up, side stance. Yeah, let's look. In, let's call it that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, that, no, but this world. I mean, I think we share a deep love of it, and 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 so much of the literal act but there are times when I, I i and again i'm i'm observing i'm sort of standing on the side and 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 documenting the things that i and finding parts of it that i find interesting but i often wish that it were more interesting um and i guess that it's sort of this thing of you come to it at, at least in my case i came to it at such a young age and, and my love was really just like i love surfing so much i love to be in the water so much and i love all these surfers and then as i've gotten older i've become more intellectually curious my my world has broadened and i mean look like surf culture specifically has has grown so much more than i ever imagined it would i mean, my when i was younger when i first started writing about it, it as in my mid 20s i remember thinking 
I want to be a writer. I want to be a good writer, but I'm going to have to get out of, I'm going to like write my way, at, become, you know, write as much as I can about the surf world, but then get out of it and write yeah. about other things. And what I fail to realize is that surfing is this sort of live organism that's growing. And in the time that I've been writing about surfing, which is now 25 years, it's sort of cross-pollinated with other cultures. And so it sort of moves over to like urban cultures and, and, and the art world and the music world, et cetera, et cetera. And so people who I love in those worlds are actually, they, they surf on their weekends or whatever. That's like the thing. So I'm so incredibly grateful for how surfing has grown in that way. But, but I do, I think there's like the very, there's a narrow focus of it that, that um, somehow it's like being... It's it's loving something so much that you sort of don't look around you. Well, enough, you, you know? I think it's I think it's just a misguided way of trying to protect it, isn't it? Mm. You know that I think I always because it ultimately it's about fighting change. And what you've just alluded to there is like it is a living organism. It is growing exponentially. I mean, Jesus, it's flat today. We drove down the coast. There's like fifty guys in every point. You know, mm. and mm-hmm. it that isn't going anywhere. Yeah, and it's only going to get worse next year when when it's gets the biggest platform ever mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you know you can't i guess what we're talking about is this you know this conflict at the heart of all these things which is like try to protect something in the face of of something you can't control which is growth by the popularity of it yeah for sure. and that seems to be what creates this rigidity of the culture because people want to you know they want to plant a flag and they want to say right enough's enough you know yeah. this is this is where we are now and that's that's too much for me but it's yeah. never going to change yeah no it's true and i also think i mean it's i i i think my whatever disappointments and i don't think i have them so much anymore i think i've i've made peace with them but there was a time when i was almost disappointed in surfing it was sort of i expected so much more from surfing and a great example is like as surfing grew and there would be like the surf movie premiere and they would do the red carpet with the the you know the logoed backdrop or or even like the surfer pole awards what would be like modeled after the oscars yeah exactly it was it was like we are this is who we are you know we can we can support this yeah but i my i guess like when i was younger i always thought like surfing would have made that stuff their own they would have put like surf the surf world that i came to in the late 70s when a cop to red carpet they, yeah. they would yeah they would like i mean I, and i'm like philosophically against the very idea of red carpets quite yeah. honestly yeah so so like when i see surfing sort of just unquestioningly like we're going to just adapt this model because that's what you do when you're mainstream or something. Always a disappointment for me. But that being said, um, there is, I don't know. I just, I think it's, I'm old enough now and I've, and I've seen it enough to where it's sort of like, it's just not, it's not unique to surfing. I think you, you accrue decades on earth and you realize that, um, I think it's heightened in the action sports world or in the, in the board riding side stanced world because, these are essentially well at their essence they're sports at their essence they're athletic feats and yeah, so they which they pretend champion, they're not <laughs> yeah but they champion you so yeah. it's sort of like if you if you were a writer for a surf skate or snow magazine you'd be focused on a very specific demographic and most of those guys and girls are under 30 years old yeah um so in many ways there's like a very the sense of getting older or the thing that that the thing that like shoots open the the bitter seed um, might happen earlier if it were elsewhere. But that being said, like if you were at a law firm and you were a partner, there would be some hotshot kid who just came out of Harvard or wherever that would threaten you. And I think like that's just, it's a natural thing of life. Yeah. Um, but maybe when you do something that's athletic that relies upon fast twitch muscles, your that hardening thing we're talking about, it might happen earlier in life than it would if you if it were. I mean, I have a lot of artist friends and it's sort of like you're not relying upon your your 
it's no that's a really interesting point and and i've never actually thought about it in that context before but you're probably right aren't you because it is it's just the same themes that we're talking about you know how you deal with this change this regeneration how you cope with it and it's it's definitely heightened when you've got that physical element to it isn't it basically yes and when you and when it's tied up so much to your self-identity which these things you know the sideways world as we're talking about it so often is when you're a kid it's who you are isn't it yeah you know and as you start to kind of lose that then i guess it is it is about how you cope with it isn't it And, and how you cope with that transition absolutely it's so interesting and we were talking earlier about you know jake phelps who was the editor of thrasher for all those years who'd recently passed away but yeah yeah, it's so hard and i think honestly this is kind of my um this is like the question that i grapple with or try i'm always trying to figure out a sort of where should surfing fit in in my life and and i've i'm learning i mean there's the literal act of surfing which is you know getting out in the water and putting and riding waves but then there's almost like all the lessons I've learned from it or all the kind of metaphorical aspects of it that, that could be applied to life. Um, and I don't know. And it's sort of um, because there can be that thing of diminishing returns. There can be that thing of, well, I was a better surfer 15 years ago than I am now. And so sometimes if I go in the water with leading with my ego, I get humbled and I'm actually bummed I even went surfing. Yeah. Because I'm just like reminded of like I'm a has-been and, you know. Yeah. The, the kid the 20 the, the 18 year old kid dropped in on me and didn't even think twice about it completely well it's tied to you in in, in our case it's tied to your masculinity isn't it it's yeah. tied to your, your your vision of what it means to be you yeah as as trivial as that sounds but i think on 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 that level it's true yeah you, know, you do you do find that self-identity in in these things and as that starts to get corroded no for sure you know I, that part of it fascinates me um many years ago now i went to i got a fulbright fellowship to go to japan to study surf skate snow and youth culture and what i was most what my proposal was based on the fact that i'd known these sports pretty well i had grown up with them and and they were so built on first of all they're individual sports and they were built on a kind of swagger almost an ego it yeah. was sort of like it's all about ego yeah almost like the hip-hop culture or something where it's like it's you know it's, it's like you've got to self-promote and you've got to like you've got to bang your fist down and and claim yourself to do well yeah rather than form a war party and go off to the neighboring territory and their previous self you know if we're getting down to it i mean it pretty much is that isn't it you know yeah for sure and i think that that when you start with that or what that's when that's part of your identity and you're say your teens and you sort of carry that with you for a while um it's hard to it's like you I don't know. I went through a period where I just really questioned that. I thought, like, okay, well, what is surfing to me, and is it is it about like where I sit, where I sit in the hierarchy of the lineup? No. And and in fact, like as a as a document or an observer of the culture, it's actually like it's not even about me. Like, get it, like throw that out the window and just and just look at this. Almost, I mean, I I'm, like part of my fascination with surf culture is just it's a it's a microcosm of the larger world. Yeah. And in my uneducated way, I can understand the larger world through this thing that mm, I know really well. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's you know it's a Darwinian thing in that way, isn't it? It's a metaphor for 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 this what we're talking about. But right now, it's a super interesting time in surf culture because, as we said, and I don't want to hit you with the Olympic question because it's quite an obvious one. But you know, fact of the matter is, there's some pretty seismic changes going on. Where you look at like wave pools, you look at like the Olympics, you look at even like what's happened with the media in the last couple of months. Mm-hmm. You know, you're ex editor of surfer, and you know mm-hmm. the, the media's been decimated in in the yeah. last sort of. Obviously, it's been leading up to this point. But in a, in a way, it's fertile ground 
for you as a as a writer and a documentary maker to kind of turn your eye on it and, and look at these changes and you know and, yeah. and see what effect it has on the culture yeah for sure i mean i you know I, i'm i wish i love watching great surfing and i and i connect I, um, viscerally with really good surfing when i see it um but i'm not i wish i were more sort of interested in the competitive facet of it or 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 um the tour for instance i mean i tune in and i watch stuff and it's fun i can't watch it yeah i just find it really dull yeah <laughs> to be honest yeah i watch the highlights when, uh-huh. when they show up on facebook or whatever but i can't sit there and watch that yeah at all it doesn't i just don't find it engaging really it's uh-huh. not why it's not the stuff that i'm interested in really right yeah yeah i mean the thing i, I think like to, to the degree that surfing's grown and the legitimate 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 sport aspect or the fact that it's going into the olympics it's almost like to the to you know commensurate with that has also been like offshoots of other parts of the surf spectrum that are not about competition and not about yeah this this element that we were talking about earlier do you, do you see that there's been a corresponding growth in, in in that interesting offshoot over the years since you first started writing about it yeah i think so i mean i th- i just think it's grown it's there's just there's more there there are many colors to the rainbow i guess you know and and um it can seem i mean so much of the surf media i guess is focused on competitive surfing or you know the the whatever the like top 44 or whatever it is yeah um but there are, i don't know there are just so many other there are so many other ways to surf i mean just the fact that there there are a lot of sports that are like inherently competitive like if you you don't i guess you can bang a tennis ball against a back a, a wall but you technically like someone that goes to play tennis on a saturday morning with their friends even if it's totally amateur they're still playing they're still a winner they walk away with a winner whereas yeah. surfing was never that way in the no. beginning and so i guess um there are just so many ways to surf that has that you don't need to be looking towards the pros to sort of tell you what it is you no. know yeah so you nearly finished this project. Yeah. A decade. Yep. What what's the next one? Do you know? I don't know. I mean I've I've been writing a lot of uh personal essay type stuff and I'm just sort of letting it shape. Um and I have a book in mind, but no, I'm just kind of at it all every day. I know that sounds vague or evasive, but I've I'm kind of shaping all these things that um that I'm hoping are all gonna come together and become clear. Yeah. I've has writing helped it sounds like it has it sounds like you, you mentioned earlier that you kind of threw yourself into it but is that is, is the therapeutic side of, of writing something that's that's important to you yeah I mean, sounds it, like it is well it's sort of writing uh, so much of it is painful and honestly in my experience i mean i've had um i've been doing it now for a long time and i earn my living pretty much solely from writing um but i still feel like i'm just learning it i still often feel like i'm uh you know, I've got the sort of imposter complex of, uh, of is it real or am I doing this and can I can, and is it sustainable? Can I keep it up? Um, but on, but, but in truth I get, it's just like some little glimmer of writing and I write every, I mean, I kind of write all day long. Um, and some of it's for publication. Some of it's like longer things I'm working at and some of the things I'm actually like writing around, I'm writing about what I'm writing just to sort of understand it better. Yeah. But when I, but when I, 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 I'll get like something, whether it's a sentence, whether it's in the sort of syntax or, or, or whether it's, um, it's an idea that feels fresh and alive. And that, that like jazzes me more than anything, you know, it's so I, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm at this 
phase right of, of late where it's sort of just trying to entertain myself and trying to keep it happy and trying to keep it fresh and not getting away from and this goes back to the talk about the fire because as having my place burned and kind of all of that it's made me um look at my life and it's made me look at my writing and uh and i think the thing i keep going back to just trying to find play in it i was walking through an upscale hollywood neighborhood recently with where there are a lot of people in the film industry etc and i was i was thinking about how um you know, artists or, or, or people who have whatever sort of creative bent that they're following, you, you realize it and then you get it to a place where you're successful or it's, or it's, or it's bringing in income, whatever, however you want to define it, but it becomes your livelihood. And this could, the same thing, forgive me for jumping around, but the same thing could be saying, said of loving surfing, skateboarding or snowboarding, and then you're doing it professionally. And then as soon as you get there, you, it's so easy to sort of forget the joy of it, to forget why you started it and forget like the, the fasts of the little aspects that sort of like titillate you and get you excited. And I, and so anyway, with writing, I've, I'm like at this stage right now where I'm just trying to excite myself as yeah. much as possible. Enjoy it for the sake of it. Yeah. And write things that are actually like, they're not, I'm not even sure where they'll get published or how they'll fit, or they may all work into a novel or they might work into a memoir, but it's like just going into things and not almost trying to get over like the adult side of the practicality. Yeah, I of completely things. understand. I mean, you know, ultimately as well, these things are a habit, aren't they? You know, creativity is a habit. Yeah. And it's really important that you don't just do it because there's a deadline or, you know, you feel like you there's a project. Like the actual act of just being creative every day yeah. writing every day and and exercising your mind to the point where you allow ideas to happen or things to take form are very very important part of it aren't they and and like you say something that often takes a while to realize yeah because it takes confidence doesn't it yeah because it because it is hard yeah it's hard to sit you know it's obviously not coal mining but like you're sitting there trying to write create it's hard and and you've mentioned imposter syndrome and it it does engender that quite quickly you know there is so if you can shelve that and 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 cultivate the habit just to to do it's really important but it does it you've got to learn it i think yeah it sounds like and it sounds like that's kind of where you are yeah yeah to just enjoy it for its own sake basically yeah 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 jamie that has been brilliant yeah thanks matt it's yeah a pleasure really enjoyed it thank yeah. you and thanks for uh thanks for having me yeah thank you so there you go that was my conversation with jamie and what an erudite insightful honest generous and impressive person he really is the other thing i should say about this chat was he was really fucking busy when we met squeezing this in between moving house and a final edit of his westley film yet there he was generously spending a few hours with us telling us his story and uh, doing the pictures that we got what a legend thanks again jamie and next time let's definitely grab that beer eh? all right so what else is going on well i received an invite to the vans duct tape challenge in erisera next week which will probably be happening by the time this one comes out which i might well end up doing i've not decided yet big cast list of vans heads there so a chance to knock out a few episodes and also get a few waves in so you might well see my instagram over at we look sideways chocker block with story chat from that if I do end up going. Elsewhere in Housekeeping Corner, well, regular listeners will know that I love a backhanded compliment, a good damning with faint praise. When a compliment comes wrapped within an insult, a complicel, as my wife refers to them. 
And I got a good one from a listener who writes, Hi Matt, I'm not used to contacting podcast hosts to say good work, but wow, you're killing it. Firstly, that amazing Corey Schumer interview. Nothing short of inspiring. Your podcast is opening my eyes and getting the old grey matter moving. Some of us grew up reading Big Brother, but we've evolved somewhat. Hearing how these women have had it is important stuff, especially for the future. I've just finished the Cersei Wallace episode. I know you like backhanded compliments, so here's one. I've never heard you interview anyone before with such composure. Your interviewing has come a long way since the first time I heard it. I may be reading too much into it, but it seems like you've made a big improvement. You seemed at ease, asking her to expand her questions and explain herself. More sure of yourself and less hesitant, at the same time more selfless. Not trying to validate your own experiences so much, perhaps. Just an observation. Amazing work. Thanks for the podcast. Keep them coming. Good test of your mental health, that type of thing, I think. Because obviously that's a great email to receive. But equally, you can take that kind of thing the wrong way, can't you? You know, the inner voice of that's what you thought the rest of them were shit since like you first been listening and what you've been humoring me ever since i mean i've actually got better at ignoring those weird voices as i've got older so to the listener who took the time to send that in i hope you're enjoying your alcohol free beer i hope you're not too embarrassed that i read this one out i salute you thanks for taking the time and the thing is he's right i was i obviously have got a lot better at this and a lot of it's to do with confidence as well well, that and how hungover I am, actually. A big part of why I actually gave up drinking for half last year was to concentrate on this more effectively because I, I did a few of them with shocking hangovers and they were, quite frankly, horrible experiences. But as I learned a lot, on, I learned a lot on the America trip. One thing doing 18 podcasts in three weeks teaches you is definitely how to handle different interview situations, how to bounce back when they don't go as well as you think. Yeah, there you go. Thanks again to Jamie Brissick for this one. And for you to tune in and listen in. See you next time. Nice one. Mm-hmm.